Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. south of the 49th parallel. While the Canadian West had the Northwest Mounted Police and civilized British sensibilities, the Western territories of the United States were feral lands where rampant opportunism was checked only by frequent outbursts of lethal violence. In Canada, the Queen's laws were borne out on the backs of honest and able mountaineers, whereas in the United States, each man carried his own law holstered on his hip. Or this is the story that many Canadians would like to think. However, as any historian of the Canadian West would attest, there was no strange of death and difficulty on the British side of the border. While Indians in the United States were being killed off by a vengeful American army, their brethren in Canada were slowly being starved to death on treaty reservations. If carefully planned settlements like Lord Selkirk's colony on the Manabuzz Red River differed greatly from the chaos of cattle towns like Dodge and Abilene. No one could say Selkirk's subjects didn't suffer their fair share of tribulation, dealing with hostile Matisse, Cree, and an unforgiving landscape that regularly dashed any hope for agriculture. And while there could be no denying the madness of American mining towns, the gold rush into British Columbia's Fraser River and Caribou region was hardly a gentle affair. True, tough government men such as Vancouver Island Governor James Douglas and the famous judge of British Columbia, Matthew Bailey Begbie, managed to stamp some semblance of order in the mad rush of gold prosecutors into the region. Nevertheless, a virulent element of lawlessness existed in British Columbia's gold rush a hard and homicidal streak that was just as ugly as anything in the 1849 California Gold Rush or the 1876 Stampede into South Dakota's Black Hills. In fact, of the thick book of aristocracies and deprofities that men visited on each other in mining camps across the West. The very worst may have occurred in Canada in a simple roadhouse right on the Caribou Road. Built near the headwaters of San Jose River, the inn at Mile 108 on the Caribou Trail was a welcoming wooden structure that stood three stories high, offering worn-out miners easeful respite from their work. The hotel was open for over 10 years, during which time not a day passed without the smell of Agnes McVie's lamb stew drifting down the road 
luring anyone to the vacancy into the big building. But all wasn't as it seemed at mile 108. Actually, things were downright rotten. Agnes McVie and her husband Jim ran the inn, assisted by their son-in-law, a big, tantrum man named Al Riley. Agnes was the obvious leader of the three. She was a voluptuous woman, tall and broad, who bellowed her welcome to customers in a thick Scottish brose. Legend has it that every man who set eyes on her was at the same time strucken by her unusual beauty and amazed by her incredible strength. She was able to flash a dazzling smile while hoisting a huge cauldron of stew from the kitchen. Come on in, boys, she sang out to visitors. Stew just came off the fire. Of course, men wouldn't come in to the inn just for the stew. Agnes also served up other frontier amenities, providing several different brands of rugged risky, flea-invested beds, and the company of women. Business did as well as it could be expected in such an isolated location. Miners came and went, but Agnes, Al, Jim, and the soil doves they employed were not getting rich. Until, that is, Agnes came up with another way to do business. Henry Dawson was steering his wagon up at the end at mile 108 early one morning in March of 1875. He was widely known as one of the wealthiest miners in the region, having worked his claim alone for nearly a decade, painstakingly putting away every nugget that he dug up until he amassed a small fortune in mineral wealth. He carried his gold around with him wherever he went, and it is estimated that he had over $11,000 worth of it in his wagon when he pulled up to McVie Inn. Agnes McVie was waiting for him at the doorway. Well then, Mr. Dawson, she cried out, flashing the solitary miner one of her brilliant grins. What a pleasant surprise. Dawson was a man of few words and only tipped his hat as he walked into the inn. He ate in complete silence, addressing Miss McVie only after he had finished with his stew. Agnes, the gruff old miner, finally said, I have a business proposition for you. Business proposition? Yeah, business, the miner responded, wincing as he took a swig of whiskey. I reckon you know I've made good over the years. I've heard you done all right, Agnes responded. Well, I'm thinking about making a home on my claim, a real home. I guess what I'm saying is that I'll be needing myself a woman. Agnes looked at the man, trying her best to look shocked. What are you proposing, Mr. Dawson? The miner was silent for a long moment before he answered. Well, I was thinking maybe I could buy one of your girls off you. For good? Agnes replied. I mean, buy her for life? That's what you're talking about. Dawson looked at Agnes straight in the eye. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I'll offer you $2,000 in gold. Agnes was suddenly receptive. $2,000? You have that in your wagon right now? That and more, the miner said, a proud look in his eye. Well, Agnes replied, you may have yourself a deal, Mr. Dawson. Why don't you stay the night while me and Jim have a talk about this? If the unfortunate practice of buying brides wasn't uncommon in the Old West, neither was it so ordinary that it didn't warrant commemoration by the buyers. Henry Dawson decided that he had a cause for celebration. 
called out to Jim McVie for another shot of whiskey, followed by another and another yet. Meanwhile, Agnes sneaked out the back door to where Al Riley waded into the bushes with the rifle in his hands. Now is the time she hissed at her son-in-law. He's getting soothed in the front room. Al crept around the end to the front window, rested his rifle on the seal, and carefully, and fired, blowing a hole through Henry Dawson's back, killing him instantly. Agnes and Al wasted no time, hauling the dead miner's body out of the inn. They carried him back to his wagon, where Jim was already unloading Dawson's gold. After they had removed every nugget and the last whiff of gold dust, Jim McVie then drove the wagon several miles from the inn, unhitched his horse, and pushed it into the lake just off the Caribou Road. When the authorities found the wagon with Dawson's body in it, they concluded that he must have been robbed and killed while traveling on the wagon road. As for Agnes, Jim, and Al, their success inspired them to continue their nefarious operation. They killed only patrons who were at the end when no one else was there usually disposing of them the same way they killed Dawson. It didn't matter who it was. The three murdered without discrimination. Merchants, gold miners, Bordillo, madams, and alpine farmers all became victims at mile 108. Pretty well every man that came up to mile 108 to buy one of Agnes's girls got himself a bullet in the back. The countryside became a virtual graveyard over the next several years. One by one, Dead bodies kept turning up, until the corpse count was numbered at over 59. Oddly enough, the local authorities never suspected the proprietors of the inn at mile 108. Convinced that a group of homicidal highwaymen were at work, the law turned its attention to the surrounding wilderness, but no matter how thoroughly poses combed the forest, no trace of band of robbers were ever found. Who knows how long this murderous operation would have continued if a young gambler by the name of McDonald hadn't showed up at the inn in the spring of 1884. He was a drifter and a gambler returning home to Montana. After spending a few years plying his dubious trade in Bakerville, his saddlebags were near bursting with his ill-gotten lucre, and he wanted only one more thing from Caribou before he went back to Montana, a wife. He arrived at the inn at mile 108 in the early evening, the only patron in the building that night. Al Riley greeted him, serving up a bowl of the house stew and a few glasses of whiskey, while Jim McVie loaded his rifle in the back of the inn. McDonald would have met his inn within the hour if Agnes hadn't walked into the dining room when she did. For when the matriarch looked at the solitary young man wolfing down her lamb stew, she fell instantly and completely in love. She rushed up to Al Riley, who was watching his quarry from behind the bar. Who's that? She asked breathlessly. How should I know? Riley shrugged. Calls himself McDonald. He's here for a woman. Agnes walked up to where McDonald was sitting. Hi there. She crooned to the young man. Al tells me you're in the market for one of my girls. That I am, miss, McDonald said between mouthfuls. Going back home to Montana and intend to be married before I get there. Well, I know just the one for you, Agnes replied. The best girl I've got, and all it'll cost you is $4,000 in gold. 
Before she went up to get the girl, Agnes walked into the kitchen and told her husband to put the rifle down. Recalling this one off, she said, This man's gonna get the bride he paid for. Returning from the second floor with a young woman in tow, Agnes handed her over to McDonald in exchange for a bag of gold nuggets. She stood back to appraise the sight of the young couple standing in front of her. Lord, what a handsome pair you make, she beamed. Now make sure you head straight for a preacher and do this proper like. McDonald spent the night at the end, and the next morning, Agnes, Jim, and Al were standing at the doorway as the couple rode off down Caribou Road. Agnes McVie waved at them. Look at that, she sighed to Riley and her husband. There's nothing in the world like the sight of a young couple in love. Neither of the men joined her when she bursted out in laughter. Indeed, if Agnes bothered to look, she might have been concerned by the ugly skull smeared across her husband's face. Jim McVie was none too happy that they let McDonald get away just because Agnes took a fancy to him. And while Jim was able to swallow his pride as the freshly acquainted pair rode away from the inn, by midday, he decided that he would never be able to respect himself if McDonald got away. Loading up his horse, Jim hit the Caribou Road after dinner, telling Agnes and Al that he was off for a short leisure trip. He didn't return until well past midnight, leading a riderless pinto by the reins. Agnes and Al were sitting in their empty bar, throwing back glasses of whiskey, when the clatter of horse hooves in the stables announced his arrival. That'll be my fool husband, Agnes said. Why don't you go see what's taken him so long? Al was back before long, standing uncomfortably in front of Agnes McVie. Jim's got that McDonald boy's horse with him, Al said, avoiding Agnes's gaze. He's got bags of gold with him, too. It was as if Agnes wasn't allowing herself to understand. How can that be? She asked her son-in-law. Jim killed him, Agnes. The boy is dead. Without saying a word, the dam of Mile 108 got up from where she sat, walked to her room, and quietly shut the door behind her. The next morning, both Jim and Al were surprised to find Agnes already up, cheerfully stirring a pot of porridge in the kitchen, singing to herself as she put the two steaming bowls in front of Al and Jim. Agnes tussled her husband's hair playfully and sat down next to him with her own bowl of breakfast. Agnes had a way of brightening up the room when she was in the right mood, and that morning, the inn was glowing. Agnes cracked one joke after another, and the room was full of laughter. Until, that is, Jim began to choke, coughing and wheezing. He tumbled from his stool, withering on the floor as foam bubbled through his lips. You've poisoned him, a shocked Al Riley said to the woman sitting across from him. But Agnes did nothing to acknowledge her wheezing husband. She kept up her casual banter until Jim stopped breathing. Then her tone changed. She was suddenly serious. Let's bury this fool in the back. The couple had just picked up Jim's dead body when the law burst through the front door of the inn. Both Agnes McVie and Al Riley were arrested on the spot. It turned out that while Jim had indeed killed McDonald the night before, his newly purchased bride managed to get away. She went straight to the local sheriff after she was freed and told them everything about the inn at mile 108. During the upcoming months, Agnes and Al denied everything, but the evidence against them was overwhelming. 
The shocked authorities found eight girls imprisoned in the inn, scared witless and half-starved. They were so terrified of Agnes that none of them would say anything about their experience at the roadhouse, but the remnants of death all around the inn spoke volumes. Investigators found charred bones in the hotel's fireplaces. Dozens of buried corpses were unearthed around the building. By the summer of 1885, there was more than enough evidence against Agnes and Al to put them on the gallows. Yet Agnes was unwilling to subject herself to a public trial. Swallowing a vial of poison, she had sneaked into prison. She took her own life the night before she was to go out to court. Al's trial was a swift affair, found guilty of multiple charges of kidnapping and murder. He was promptly hung for his role in the killings. Years passed, and the evil perpetrators of the Inn of Mile 108 passed into local legend. In 1892, the original building was torn down and rebuilt on the other side of the Caribou Road. A post house, store, and telegraph station were attached. The gold rush subsided. New settlers came with the intention of making crops grow from soil. Old adventurers left for new opportunities. The years passed and the horror of the aristocracies faded, but they would never be completely forgotten. People were always conscious that most of the gold the trio stole was never found. In 1924, a local farmer found $2,500 in gold buried on his property. Years later, a second cache of gold nuggets was unearthed. This one, worth over $6,000. There's nothing like the idea of buried treasure to keep a legend alive. And the estimated $100,000 of unclaimed gold buried around Mile 108 has ensured that the legend remains. But it is not just an allure of buried treasure that kept the morbid tale of Mile 108 circulating. For strange things began to report around the area soon after Al Riley was hung. It started with the lights. Travelers who found themselves around mile 108 during the glooming hours saw them. Orbs of light that bobbed up and flashed in the not too distant darkness. Some saw white lights, others said yellow, and still others claimed that they were red. Regardless of the color, everyone who laid eyes on them felt the same sense or foreboding, struck by an unpleasant certainty that whatever they were, they weren't friendly. More than one frazzled traveler intended to set up camp kept riding through the night to put as much distance as possible between themselves and the ominous light show. Those who bore witness to the lights at mile 108 never had any good to say about the experience, but some travelers had much more unpleasant encounters near the McVee's old inn. People setting up camp in the area would be woken up in the middle of the night by horrible screams and blood-chilling laughter coming from darkness. According to witnesses, there is nothing subtle or remote about these sounds. They were loud and terrible, seeming to come from the mouths of terrible beings that were just beyond their firelight. Travelers who didn't immediately pack up and hit the road right then and there would be kept up the entire night by these unearthly sounds waxing and waning throughout the night. And then, there were the stories of travelers who slept through the night without being disturbed, only to wake up and find that their mounts had been taken in the night. Horses and mules vanished without a trace, leaving not even the slightest tracks to mark their passing. 
Indeed, these animals' disappearances were so complete that no one suspected bandits were responsible. The mysterious animal thefts were quickly linked to another bizarre occurrence around Mile 108, and it was deemed these vanishing acts were the work of many discontent and vengeful spirits that fell victim to the McVees. The strange happenings along the stretch of the Caribou Road continued to get stranger. By the late 1880s, the legend of the road took on the life of its own, and word began spreading that men were disappearing around Mile 108 again. Then it stopped. When the McVeed Roadhouse was torn down in 1892, no one heard another story about flashing lights, strange sounds, or vanishing animals. The hills around Mile 108 went suddenly silent and dark at night. No more animals went missing inexplicably, and people began stopping at Mile 108 again. The brutal McVeed killings and the haunting of the area passed into legend and no one would ever be able to explain the shadow that fell over the region between 1885 and 1892. It was largely suspected that Agnes, Jim, and Al were still responsible, somehow reaching beyond the grave to continue their reign of death and misery over the region that was once theirs.